How deep was the rut in Mitzrayim before the Jewish people left? And how deep do we have to dig within ourselves in order to leave our personal Mitzrayim? Let's see the debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva, what that tells us about how much we had to rehabilitate Mitzrayim. The Rebbe will also link this to the laws of what it takes to get rid of Chometz. So we know that with regards to the Makas that happened in Mitzrayim, we know this from the Pesach Seder, is to our Pluktut between Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Akiva. There's a debate between Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Lezer, according to Rabbi Eliezer, every one of the ten plagues was actually made up of four plagues within it. Whereas Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva says each plague was made out of five elements, of five divisions, five facets, five plagues. Okay, what's the difference? What is the message behind this, these two opinions, whether it was four or five plagues? Is Mavurin Kolboy B'Shem Melamed. The Kolboy quotes the so called teacher as the Plukta is that the argument is as follows it's deep spiritual stuff. Rabbi Eliezer Halt, as Nachazabim Durkinum and Aladadi Yasodis von Yedazach, and Vachazazazain and Geven, the Makos, according to Rabbi Eliezer, each one of the Makos infected and affected all the four core elements that made up every single thing that they touched. We'll see an example in a second. I'll say that means the uh, Mako didn't just strike the particular thing as a finished product where all the various components and elements were already put together, but it actually drilled down into a far deeper reality of each element. To the essence of each element that made up the particular thing, that's why each maka was four faceted. Let's give an example because this could be quite abstract. When the water was smitten and turned into blood, it wasn't just that the water turned into blood, the finished product, water as we know it, turned into blood. But the other invisible elements that make up water, so the fire element, which might be the energy within water or the potential to boil, and the earth element, which is the tangibility of water, and the air element, of course, the oxygen particles within the water, all of those turn into blood as well, not just the overarching element of water. Rabbi Akiva takes it even deeper. Rabbi Akiva says that there's this principle of called Choymer Hiyuli, which is primeval material. In other words, the basic, basic material before it's even identified as four elements, the Maka got to that depth as well. It's almost like the subatomic reality of the particular item. That's a level of each particular thing where it doesn't even have the appearance of elements per se. That's why it's like subatomic realities, the quarks, whatever it might be. Therefore, according to Rabbi Akiva, there's five aspects to every single plague because it dismantles all the four visible elements, fire, air, water, and earth that make up the particular item, as well as that which is invisible, that lies even deeper, maybe the dark matter, whatever it is, that makes up the, the real essence of what something is. Now, once we know that information, let's take it back to understand, well, what's the purpose of the Makos? It wasn't just simply to punish the Egyptians. The Mechuban in the Makos is given Kishmon, simple understanding, as the name indicates, of the Makos was to hit and to break Egypt, which means not just to punish, but to break the Metzius of Egypt. The fun is fashtandik, which leads us to understand as in your anal dos was the makis hogam durki dung in the dvarim hamukim, 
So the fact then that the Makos, as we now see Rabbi Ezra and Rabbi Akiva debate how deeply they went into the particular materials, is Aleph Lutbeidet Deus is thus given it not in the Megillah. So both Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva agree that the strike of each Makkah didn't only hit what was visible or tangible to us, to people, to observers. And the Zach Vir in other words, the item as it appears is not the only level of the item that was harmed. The water wasn't only, it was the particles of the water as well. Now, the essence of what that thing is made of was also affected by and impacted by the particular makkah. That's, that's by, by all accounts. But based, now, this debate about how deeply did it go all depends on two perspectives on how deep did the rot of Mitzrayim go? How deep did the impurity of Mitzrayim infect Mitzrayim? If the purpose of the Makkos is to break and dismantle Mitzrayim, then depending on how deeply Mitzrayim is bad will determine how deeply the Makkos have to strike. So let's understand that concept because that will link us to how you get rid of Chomets. Chomets, of course, being the symbol of and the evolution of the Tumah of Mitzrayim. So there in Yenalalas, Tumas Mitzrayim at the Greich, them etzim from Metzius Advarim, on the Oiben Gebrachte, in the Oiben Gebrachte Plukte in them. So now we've identified that everybody agrees that the impurity of Mitzrayim went beneath the surface, and it's just a debate of how deeply beneath the surface. Spiegelt sich ab, wie alle in Yoni Hagodim, Pnim Esoteric in Nigle de Torah, like anything else which is in the more esoteric or the more intangible parts of Torah, it will always reflect back to the very tangible, the legalistic parts of Torah. Bizen Aloche. And you're going to see the same principles that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Loza debate are going to reflect in the uh, in, in the, uh, the the debate about how you get rid of chometz. Chometz is effectively an outcome of the impurity of Mitzrayim. It's like the residue of the impurity of Mitzrayim. That's why we have to get rid of it over Pesach. So, what's unique about chametz is not only that you're forbidden to eat chametz, because that would be like other tray foods, and not only that, you're not even allowed to have personal benefit from chametz, which is not unique to chametz, other categories of, of uh, Isra that also you may not have uh, benefit from. What's radical about chametz is you may not see it, and it may not be anywhere in your possession. Which obviously then brings us to the responsibility that we have to get rid of chametz. Because it's not just a matter of not using it, you're not allowed to have it. Now, if you think about it, when we're told that we may not eat something, obviously that is a restriction against us engaging what that particular thing has to offer in its appearance, in its current state. So in other words, if you tell me not to eat something, you're obviously referring to something that is in a state that could be eaten. In other words, it's like a finished product. It's ready for the market. If the prohibition is against eating, then we're not talking so much about the material as we are about the product. So, for example, if you have a raw potato, then you don't have to tell me not to eat it because I wouldn't eat it. But if I have a potato that's been roasted, so now it's ready to eat, it's got the tzura, it's got the appearance of a food product that's ready to eat, and now the terror comes along and says, for whatever reason, I may not eat it, so there would be a restriction against me engaging with this particular item in its finished state, but there wouldn't be a prohibition against the thing in its raw state. <clears throat> the, um, so the, we're, not, we're not prohibiting the actual essence of what this particular thing is. 
Whereas the Hanoa, the Surah But when you tell me that I'm not allowed to have benefit from an item, then you're telling me the entire item, not just its current presentation, is problematic. So if theoretically you told me that I may not have any benefit from a potato, that means I can't throw the potato to an animal to eat, or I can't turn it into mulch to fertilize my, my garden, or whatever the case is, because there's something intrinsically wrong with this potato, not just with the edible potato. That helps us to understand how you could have something which the Torah says you're allowed to have and even benefit from, you just may not eat it. Because from a spiritual perspective, if something is bad and if something is prohibited, surely I should be completely hands-off. How can I have any personal benefit from it? It's something impure, it's something dirty. Not the beer in the miskanal, but that's exactly the point. If the Torah says that the limitation and the restriction around something is I may not eat it, the Torah is effectively telling us that the impurity of that particular item is relatively superficial. It's only manifest in the current presentation or in the user-friendly element of this particular thing. So in the state that it is ready to eat, that's the state that is infected and can't be touched. But a deeper state, the raw state, where it's not relevant to humans, for example, might not be impure. Because then it's possible that I could have a personal benefit, I could sell it or I could use it for another purpose because the essence of this particular item has not been infected. That's the difference between something which is forbidden to eat versus something which is forbidden for personal benefit. So now that we've established that when something is forbidden to have any benefit, that in, indicates that the impurity has seeped all the way into the essence of the actual item itself. Still, it's not completely to the essence of it. Think about it. If I'm not allowed to have benefit from something, then the restriction is still where it benefits, where it adds value to my life. Something can only add value to my life if it has a particular presentation. So, for example, if I have a whole lot of subatomic particles, it's not going to give any benefit to my life. Whereas when I have an item that I may not eat, but I am allowed to sell, well, it still plays a role in my life because it's got a market value and it's got a particular shape and a particular appearance, etc. So that means that we're still talking about something which is somewhat uh, superficial. You're not yet at the core of what it is, something which can be identified. Chometz is different. But Chometz aber kommt zu der Isser as a tozach nit gefinnen resus von Aiden. What's unique about Chometz is I may not have it anywhere in my possession. I feel on welches is shimush mit Chometz even if I'm never going to touch it. I'm not going to use it even indirectly. Das heißt, as der Isser hat durchgenommen dem Chemer wetzem adover mir is oiz giton von Eiset zur Shetiyeh. That is evidence to the fact that the impurity associated with Chometz on Pesach is something that has touched the very essence of the Chometz items regardless of their utility. That's why the problem is not eating. The problem is not even using or benefiting from. The problem is if it exists because its mere existence is absolutely fundamentally impure. And that's pretty much how Mitzrayim was. Its existence had to be dismantled because it's fundamentally impure. Now, in the mitzvah, let's analyze this mitzvah of getting rid of chametz. You'll see that there's a debate between Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim. And that's going to speak to this point. 
Because in the Mitzvah from Bir Chomis, it's not a proctus between Rabbi Yudah and Chacham, and the Mishnah Psachim brings the debate between Rabbi Yudah and Chacham, which is Rabbi Yudah, Emir, Emir Chomis, Elis Reifa. Rabbi Yudah says there's only one way to get rid of Chomis, and that's to burn it. Whereas the Chacham said the other ways, you could dissolve it, crumble it up, and let the wind blow it away, or you could throw it into the sea, and that would also be acceptable. So explains what's the rationale between the two views. So Rabbi Yehuda is very clear about the fact that the Chomets has to disappear. It has to be in a state where there's no longer Chomets absolutely destroyed. So you've got to burn it. Because if you just scatter it to the wind or throw it into the water, the fact is the Chomets will still exist, just in microscopic particles, but it will still exist. Whereas the Chachamim say, well, as long as it no longer appears like Chomets in the normal way that Chomets is, that's good enough. That would be considered destruction. The minute you destroy the Chomets from its current state, it is no longer something a person would eat or be able to have benefit from. And that's good enough. And you can achieve that by scattering it to the wind or throwing it into a body of water. Or move on. So it's self-understood. So clearly the nature of this debate of what does it take to destroy Chomets must be directly related to how deeply is Chomets infected by impurity. If we understand that the nature of Chomets is that it has been contaminated all the way to the core of its being, then the only way to get rid of Chomets is that the essence of its being no longer exists. You have to burn it. And if you're going to argue that Yes, there's a deep contamination in Chomets, but it's only to the Chomets that can be described and identified as Chomets, then it's going to be Well, then all you need to do is neutralize it from being something that is susceptible, that is usable, that you could eat, that you could have benefit from. You don't have to destroy it at its core. Well, the name isn't talking Issa because there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it at the core of its being. And with that in mind, we could then align Rabbi Yehuda with Rabbi Akiva and the Chachamim with Rabbi Eliezer. We'll align it directly to the debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva about how many layers were there to each Makkah. Rabbi Eliezer, who, as we've mentioned, said that each Makkah was made up of four components. So his view is, that the Makos only had to attack Mitzrayim as a visible Mitzrayim, as a Mitzrayim that identifies as Mitzrayim, that looks, walks, quacks like Mitzrayim. <clears throat> so that aligns with the opinion of the Chachamim. Chomet's the same. You just need to get rid of its appearance, of its structure. Um, as the Chachamim say, as long as you get rid of the Chomets that could be used, that could be eaten, you get rid of its appearance, you get rid of its structure, you get rid of its, uh, of its reality, that's good enough. Whereas Rebbe Kiva says, no, you've got to dig deeper, you've got to get to that invisible core of Mitzrayim and destroy that too. Because you've also got to dismantle the primeval uh, subatomic reality of this particular thing called Mitzrayim. So he would align completely with Rabbi Huda's opinion that the only way to get rid of Chomets is destroy completely, that it no longer resembles Chomets in any way at all.
So, but dugme, so ditzvei fanim bir chametz, when you get after metzius for chametz. Now that we have these two views about getting rid of chametz, and that it's a question of do you have to just get rid of chametz in the class of chametz, or do you have to get rid of chametz in the essence of chametz? So, see, Torah hot gas, the etzimetzis, vcs, uzgiton, from velchesis, tsura, is the Torah prohibiting us from having any association with any variable of chomet, even when it doesn't appear as classic chomet? Are the nodemetzis, vs, vabunamitin, tayar, or is the Torah only restricting us from engaging with chomet when it appears as chomet, when it has the structural integrity of chomet? The fact that there's the potential that you may get some kind of a benefit out of it. So because there are two views, when the Torah tells us that you may not have benefit from comets, there's two possibilities there too. Which of course will link back to our same original point, which is how deeply does the does the, the, the infection go? How bad is the contamination? How how much of the core of the comets is actually affected? So so halacha defines the possibility that there are certain kinds of benefit that a person has which could eventually track back and link to food. In other words, because the, the Rashi tells us, basically commenting on the Gemara of Sachim, that typically what happens is any money trail, so if I have any personal benefit because I sell the chomets or because I give it to somebody as a gift or whatever, there's always the possibility that that's going to lead to me having the resources to be able to buy food. So the prohibition against benefiting from chomets is actually in a, a roundabout way linked to the prohibition against eating the food. Which basically refers to anything that I get personal benefit out of because you could always translate that into some kind of uh, food, right? I did you a favor, give me a meal or whatever. There's always the possibility to link it back to eating. Of a mele is as maybe lidei therefore the definition of hano is hano that could potentially eventually lead to being able to eat something. Shalakech bedomim Michael again quoting Rashi because you use the money or the benefit in order to get food. That's one possibility and that's probably the most common way that we understand hano. But there is another possibility, base. It is also possible that a person could use something where the fact is you have used it, but it gives you absolutely no benefit. And the classic example that Yashalmi brings is that what happens if there are some street dogs that don't belong to anybody and you give your chomets to those dogs? So you have no benefit because the dogs are not going to thank you. Neither is the owner going to thank you. And of course, there's no money coming back. So it's a completely humanitarian or, shall we say, altruistic move. And you're getting nothing for it. And you certainly can't say, well, somehow from that act, you're going to land up getting food. And that's the problem. Association of chomets becoming food. So the Yoshami brings a debate about this. You know, what's the halacha in this particular case? Um, one view is, it's fine, no problem, because you're not getting any utility. You can feed your chomets to some street dogs that don't belong to anybody. Whereas the other opinion says, no, hang on a second, the Torah says, which is an unusual expression, it's a more kind of reflective expression, and that indicates it may not come to be eaten through you, even if the recipient is not a human, and not a human, that, uh, an, an animal that has no association with any human, so there's no track back for you. 
So that debate in Yerushalmi will also line up with the debate we've now identified with Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Huda and the Chachamim, this essential debate about how badly affected is Chomet by the impurity that the Torah needs us to avoid on Pesach. If we're going to go with the opinions of Rabbi Eliezer or the Chachamim, which is that the Chomets only really affects what can be described and experienced and defined about the Chomets, well then the prohibition that the Torah will make against me having any benefit from this Chomets will have a limitation. It would have to be a behavior that could link up afterwards with Eating, in other words, it could link up with a particular utility, with a particular concept, with a particular uh, experience. Maybe the deisha machila, and only that would be aser. But But if you go with Rabbi Akiva's opinion, which appears to be Rabbi Huda's opinion as well, that that's not good enough because as long as the chometz just merely exists, that's a problem because the contamination is right to the core of the chometz. Regardless of whether it looks like Chomets, whether it's playing the role of Chomets, whether it is edible like Chomets, whether it can be sold like Chomets, well, then you're saying that it's an intrinsic prohibition regardless of how you're using it. So if the recipient has no benefit to you, it doesn't make a difference. You may not use this Chomets in any which way. Even if the result of what you're going to share or who you're going to share the chametz with can never trace back to any personal benefit to you, certainly not eating, doesn't matter. Now we're going to, with that in mind, introduce the third opinion, which is actually included in the Haggadah Pesach and is brought in the Mechiltas, we'll see in a second. Rabbi Yosei is quoted in the Mechilta just before the debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva. He says something else, which seems, at first glimpse, to be unrelated to their debate, but turns out is actually directly related. Because Rabbi Yosei view is that in Mitzrayim, when it says that there were 10 Makos, it means literally 10 Makos, but at the sea, that's when it multiplied out to 50. We're not going to focus on the sea, we're going to focus on the fact that he says, in Mitzrayim, it was only 10 makos. What's his opinion in all of this? His valashito says, Chomet That's because Rabbi Yosef really has a view, even though we don't follow this halachically, that you may have personal benefit from Chomet as long as you don't eat it. So that would mean that from his perspective, the prohibition against Chomet is only Chomet when it's playing the ordinary role of Chomet, i.e., as a food. Which means Rabbi Yosef Aglili's view of Mitzrayim, because Mitzrayim is the direct cause of Chomets, must be that Mitzrayim was only superficially contaminated. Only the structure of Mitzrayim under its then leadership with its particular hierarchy and treatment of people, that was the problem. And therefore, Rabbi Yosef's view would be the Mako just has to hit Mitzrayim as we see it, and that suffices. That does the job. So now that we've seen that the argument we built the soul on, which is between Rabbi Yelias and Rabbi Akiva, all hinges on how deeply the, the, the rot went into the fiber of Mitzrayim. 
will help us understand what seems to be a very different topic, and that is, how do you qualify which are the four mega-nations that persecuted and uh, ex- exiled the Jewish people? Usually Mitzrayim is left out. Typically on the lists in most sources that speak about those nations who um, gave the Jewish people, Golos gave us a really difficult time, Bovel, Poras, Yovan, Edom, typically uh, Mitzrayim is not on the list. And the reason that's typically, that's usually given is because, as the Arizal says, Mitzrayim is just a mega goddess. It's in a whole class of its own, and it's the equivalent of all the other goddesses combined. That's why it's not listed with the others, because it doesn't belong on the same list. It's in a whole different scale of, of goddess. Yet, but there are certain places, including in the Gemara, where Mitzrayim is on the list, and it's actually put as number one for obvious chronological reasons, number one of the four Goliaths. So which one is it? Is it completely in a category of its own, or is it part of the history of the Jewish people? Well, the reason behind those two differences of opinion would link directly back to what is Mitzrayim and how deeply rotten is it? In other words, what do we mean? The reason why most of the time Mitzrayim is not listed together with the other great empires that enslaved the Jewish people or uh, imprisoned the Jewish people or exiled the Jewish people is because as the Arizal explains, those four Goliois correspond to the four letters of Hashem's name. They're like the antithesis of Hashem's name. Whereas Golos Mitzrayim is the little nick, the little piece of the of the letter Yud that is required in a Sefer Torah in order for the, the, the Yud to be a kosher Yud, which isn't really part of the letter and in a sense supersedes the letter. Now one of the principles that we do know also from that result is that the four elements, um, fire, air, water, and earth, correspond to the four letters of Hashem's name. Whereas Keser, which is completely beyond the system and is represented by the Koit social Yud, that little, that little piece, the little barb on the Yud, that is something which represents Chomer Hiuli, the invisible subatomic reality of existence. That implies that the four major Goliaths each impacted a particular area related to one of the names of Hashem. And Mitzrayim is beyond that because it is able to affect and contaminate, well not contaminate, but interfere with a very lofty dimension of Debesha, which is completely beyond the four letters of Hashem's name. So in those rare occasions where Mitzrayim is on the list of the four, that would have to align with the opinion that Mitzrayim is not the level of Keser, as most opinions put it, but rather the level of Chochmah, which is already aligned with an inside the system represented by Yudke Vovke. Now that opinion would still uh, would still insist that Mitzrayim is not just the first, but is also the shurish, the root from which every other golos is spawned. But it's the kind of shurish where it's almost like you can see everything inside it, so to speak, like uh, almost 
like a miniature version of something that's going to grow as opposed to a seed, which is more like you look at the seed and you cannot see what's going to emerge from the seed. Uh, and so therefore that opinion that believes that Mitzrayim is on the list of the four major Goliaths, that's effectively saying that the Klippa, the impurity of Mitzrayim, could only affect the world in the realm of four Yosodists. It can't affect, couldn't cause any spiritual damage at a deeper level than the four dimensions of existence, the four basic building blocks of existence, which represent the four letters of Hashem's name. Now, all of that is intriguing to read about Mitzrayim, but it's important to relate back to our lives. The Indian from Golis Vitzis Mitzrayim is a Yichdoin Abedaruchnis. We know very well that the experience of being a slave in Mitzrayim and leaving Mitzrayim is reflected in how we serve the Ibishna. Because Mitzrayim is from Loshain, Mitzorim, Mugvulim. Anybody familiar with basic Hasidus knows that Mitzrayim is related to the concept of limitations, restrictions, uh, restraints. And obviously, escaping Mitzrayim is to escape all of those restrictions. So to be a slave in Mitzrayim means that we're serving the Ebishter with major limitations defined by the restrictions of Mitzrayim. To leave Mitzrayim means that you escape. You escape those restrictions, external, internal, even, and this is really interesting, even the, restri- even the, the limitations of our own nefesh elikis. That's what Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim means. Not just to get away from our toxic side, but even to break free of our spiritual status quo, even when it's good spirituality. And that's what Rabbi Elezer and Rabbi Akiva are also debating. How far do you have to go in the spiritual move of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? They're debating, is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, in other words, the destruction of Mitzrayim, only to dismantle the four core elements of what Mitzrayim is made of? Do you have to go to the very substance of what Mitzrayim is built on? What does that mean spiritually? Do we only have to challenge ourselves to experience Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim within the realm of the ten facets and powers of our neshama? The ten facets of the Neshama, as we'll see in just a moment, are split into four categories which correspond to the four letters of Hashem, Hashem's name. What are those four categories? Aleph, starting from the bottom up. Malchus, the lowest experience of our Neshama is what we call Malchus, which relates to behavior and to speech and to even to the way we think. Beyond that is Beis Bamidois. Then there's the experience of the Neshama as it expresses in our subjective responses to the world, the so-called emotions, Zeranpin. Then higher than that, Gimel Besechel Bina. Then there's the experience of Anashama intellectually, which relates to Bina. And then Dalit Messias Nefesh Chochma. And then the highest level is Messias Nefesh, which, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Prekut Ches of Tanya, Messias Nefesh is something that comes from Chochma. Not Chochma as in wisdom, Chochma as in the capacity to let go of self, Koyachma, to be able to be attached to and committed to something completely beyond ourselves. So that's the opinion essentially of Rabbi Eliezer. All of our work has to span from Malchus to Chochma. Order, or according to Rabbi Akiva, do we also have a challenge to experience Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim at the deepest level of the essence of Anishamah, which is the spiritual equivalent of that basic building block of existence? Rabbi Eliezer says, just four strikes. Rabbi Eliezer gives us plenty of work to do that we should have a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim experience in all the four core aspects of our Neshama, from Malchus all the way to Chochmah. 
So whatever our natural state is in any of those four areas, we have to extend it. Now you might ask the question, how do you get past, how do you have a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim with regards to Messias Nefesh? We'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's start from the bottom. The Nidirik Stoifen is, the simplest, lowest, most accessible level is, we're battling against our Yitzhahara, and maybe we put in a certain amount of effort, but we do have our limits. Obviously, the intention of the Yitzhahara is to cause us to fail in those key areas, behavior, speech, or thought. So we're, we're fighting that. And when we need a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, it's those real challenges in our lives. Those particular things, you know how it is. Everybody has something that they think everybody else, if you knew what I was going through, you'd have more sympathy for me. Because we all have our particular personal challenges. So that's where you need a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim in the world of Machshav de the world of Malchus. A little bit more subtle and advanced than that. is So it's still Mitzrayim, but it's a totally different kind of Mitzrayim is, a person's behavior is beautiful. They are cautious to stay away from anything that is prohibited, even if it's only rabbinic, even if it's only a so-called minor rabbinic issue. But the person's engagement in what they'll do in the positive, well, that's got to form, that's got to fall within the expectations of society. Which means the person is always conscious of how's everybody going to view and respond to how I behave. So I'm not going to make a big noise. I'm not necessarily going to do things in a public fashion. I'll do what I have to do, but I'll keep it low-key because I don't want to rock the boat. So what causes that? Is that a person's sense, because remember, these are subjective responses to the world. So this person's subjective response to the world is, the world has to be considered. And I don't necessarily have a voice loud enough to shout down the world, so let me keep to my own space and be a good Jew in my space. So that is in Zayna Midas. That's an issue of Mitzrayim with regards to the, how the person feels about the world. Right? Feeling and considering and, and being really concerned with what's out there and how they're going to relate to me. Now, now let's say a person's really progressed even beyond that, where they no longer have any concern for what everybody else expects. I'm going to do what the Abish wants because that's what the Abish wants, and I don't really mind if people think or feel that there's something odd about my behavior. But it's still possible that a person could go out there and do things which are really impressive to everybody else around them, but they're still very much locked into their own personality. Which means the person is doing things that are impressive to the rest of us, but actually in their own head, they're very much stuck in their particular way of thinking, their particular perspective on the world, and they can't challenge that, and there's a certain... Uh, apathy that is associated with that. This I know what I'm doing and I'm good and please don't rock my boat because I'm actually in control. As far as Rabbi Eliezer is concerned, the highest, most challenging area where we really have to break free of ourselves is that even in those areas of our lives where we experience mysterious nefesh, we have to challenge ourselves to escape our pre-existing state of mysterious nefesh. That means you're talking about somebody who really does uh, dedicate to the Ebesh in a way that's completely beyond the restrictions of the rational mind. But still within a particular framework. Now, that's difficult for us to imagine. The Rebbe will give an example. It's a fairly well-known example. Story about an individual that the Friedrich Rebbe shares. Um, 
here that you'll notice the Rebbe does not tell us which kind of an individual, I believe the original story does. And he said that he, he, he would meditate on the word Echad and Shema Hashem Echad. So he was very happy to share afterwards that he had successfully focused and meditated on Hashem Echad for a full minute. That means to say, here's somebody who is completely engrossed in the consideration of Echad, which includes the responsibility to sacrifice everything for the Nefesh. And while he was genuinely in a state of readiness for Messias Nefesh, he also had the presence of mind to check the clock and see how long he had dedicated to the exercise. Or the Bedakus Yoser, or in a much more subtle way, by Misnoch Dod the Hegdash does a prophet Mesiris Nefesh. You get some people who they are willing to sacrifice, do experience Mesiris Nefesh for Hashem, and they're very conscious of the fact that I have Mesiris Nefesh. I'm a Mesiris Nefesh yet. As does Babai says, it's not neat legamra rois from the Medidas Vagbolus from Zayim Mesiris, which of course is clear evidence that the person has not completely escape themselves. And that would be Rabbi Eliezer's challenge to us, that even our Messias Nefesh, we have to challenge whether or not it's real Messias Nefesh. Rabbi Akiva goes even beyond that. Rabbi Akiva says, no, there's a fifth dimension too. Rabbi Eliezer is al-shemir to understand the difference between Rabbi Eliezer's and Rabbi Akiva's perspectives. It's to understand who the people were and what their reality was. Rabbi Eliezer comes from, a, how does he get his name? David is on his side. As given Ben Hurkenes, he came from a good family, wealthy, prestigious family. And he's a descendant of Avram Yitzchak which means he could call on the embedded strength of the forefathers to be able to succeed. Therefore, in Rabbi Eliezer's world, you have so much support, you have so much holding you, it couldn't enter his mind the possibility that a person could be challenged at the essence of their being as a Jew. Because from his perspective, even if a person doesn't have Eira, they are still absolutely um, loyal to Hashem at that time, deep within. Rabbi Akiva has a different background, experience, and perspective. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva came from a family that is not originally Jewish. So therefore, Rabbi Akiva could relate to people who are not even in the system. They're not even in the world of Yiddishkeit. You've got to reel them in. Or in a much more developed or subtle way, Rabbi Akiva could relate to what David Amelech calls Mikfirim Yechidosi. My Yechidah Shebenefesh has a challenge from the so-called Kfirim, the young lions, which the Alter explains means that just as there is a Yechidah Shebenefesh, which is, of course, the most powerful part of our Neshama, it is possible for a person to have the so-called so-called equivalent of a Yechidah side of the Nefesh Abraham. It's just like our Yechidah Shebenefesh has an unstoppable force of connection to Hashem. It is possible sometimes that a person has such an overpowering force of the Nefesh Abraham is they don't know how to control it. And that's who Rabbi Akiva is talking to. You've got to dig to the very depths of your being to be able to break out of the so-called Yechidah of the Nefesh Abraham, which fights against the person's Yechidah. But... Rabbi Akiva's approach, which might seem quite jarring to us, that there's work to be done in the Yechida domain, brings to a massive benefit on the other hand. 
Well, if you do work in this way, that means you can even break out in the radical way of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim from a level associated with the essence of the Neshama, which is quite a thought. It's possible with Rabbi Akiva's approach to even break free of the limitations of the essence of our Neshama, which you would never imagine to have limitations. By connecting to the nefesh kiss that has absolutely no restrictions at all. And thus brings you to the in Aladargus, or the Gomrot, so you see some time from Mitzrayim, the Goddess of Achim Begashmus, Kemetes, Homerit Mitzrayim, or Enner Flois. If we follow this path, we break out of every kind of imaginable Mitzrayim, including the Goddess that we are in now, with the coming of Moshiach, which happen immediately.